Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better, war, a better life if times get tougher, or even if they don't. Today is Monday, October the 5th, 2015, and this is episode 1653 of the Survival Podcast. After a week off, a week off of podcasting, but not a week off of work, uh, This last week was a week where I do more more work on weeks like that than I do any other time of the year. Of course, TSP events is when that happens three or four times a year that we do them here at Nine Mile Farm, and that's when they really kind of kind of are a big deal. And we had, I think, the best event we've ever had. Uh, those of you coming in November, I think we'll have one just as good. We had some really cool stuff this time around, including some things that I haven't told anybody about because we try to do a few things that are at least like surprises for the students. Anyway, um, I'm back, and I uh, hope everybody caught up on older episodes last week is ready to rock forward here. Today is a Monday, so it's a listener feedback show. This is where you send me emails to jack at com. Again, jack at com with TSPC in the subject line. Uh, that'll get them into the right folder for screening, and uh, so they'll get further sorted there by me. And I'll try to get them on a show. Remember, if you do not get on the show, it doesn't mean that I don't read your email. I do read... Uh, every email that comes in, at least I try to, if you write me 97 paragraphs without an opening that just tells me what it's about in the first sentence, I may not read it, but uh, I try to at least scan every email that comes in. And a lot of stuff that does not get on the show goes out on YouTube and Twitter uh, and other places as well. So uh, keep the emails coming, even if I do not get your email on the air. Uh, before I get to your emails this week, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consult and the awesome Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors at FortressDefense.com will help you to complete that final linchpin in the gun operator triangle of efficiency. You know, people often ask me, what is the next gun I should buy? And what I say is maybe you should invest in some training. If you already have a good shotgun, a rifle, a handgun, and maybe a few other things for hunting and sporting purposes, instead of just buying another gun because it's cool or it was on the cover of a magazine, maybe you should invest in that final linchpin, the final moving part in that triangle of efficiency. You know, first you have the gun. You buy a gun off the shelf. It is what it is. It does what it does. You can rely on it to be what it is. Ammo is the same way. Good quality ammunition. You can never have too much of it, but you can buy it off the shelf. Those two things are commodities. There's one thing that really requires ongoing investment. That's you, the operator. You're the final moving part. A gun and ammo in the hands of somebody who doesn't know what to do can be more dangerous to the people that are trying to defend themselves than it can be a help to the situation. And it's also the case that even if you know how to handle a weapon professionally, you know what you're doing mechanically, there's a mental component when lives are on the line that cannot be condensed down into words. It has to be trained. It has to be drilled into you. You have to realize that if you get into one of these situations, what you'll end up doing is falling back to your lowest, not highest level of proficiency. That's where training kicks in and takes over. The kind of training you'll get from Frank and his cadre at FortressDefense.com. Check them out today. Learn how you can become an efficient operator of that weapon that you're carrying for the defense of yourself and others. 
Sponsor of the day number two today, Ready-Made Resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does right on their website. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready to go at readymaderesources.com. And when I say all the resources, I mean it. From the tactical to the practical, from guns to gardens, and everything in between, you'll find it at Ready-Made Resources. 12-volt appliances to go with your solar and wind projects? Check, they've got that. You want to do solar and wind? Hey, they've got everything you need for that. You want long-term storage food? You want it by the can or by the case? They've got it. You want to make your own long-term storage food? You need uh, Mylar bags and O2 absorbers? They've got that. You want gamma lids for your five-gallon buckets? Got it, check, no problem. You want to start canning, whether it's water bath or pressure canning, they've got what you need. Dehydrators, got that too. Want to get over and look at some tactical accessories or firearms if you're in their state or have an FFL to ship to? They've got it all, man. Like I said, the practical to the tactical, the guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it all at the company that does what they say and says what they do. ReadyMadeResources.com, a long-term sponsor of the Survival Podcast, Happy to serve you with great pricing and great service. Again, ReadyMadeResources.com. All right, with that knocked out, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1653, because the episode is 1653. I have two for you today. I have no taxation without representation, and I have John Castor walks away from slavery. I kind of wanted to read the tax one because we think of that, that phrase a lot later in history, This has to do with the Dutch and the English and the Dutch taxing the English colonists and thought it would be interesting. But I have to read this other one because it's such a pivotal moment in the new world in the 1600s. And it leads to all types of problems in the future. Obviously, slavery is the issue, but how it started and the fact that it started in a way that we just don't teach people today because it doesn't fit with the political narrative Uh, that we have about slavery. Not that slavery wasn't wrong, not that racism wasn't a component of it, but it does take on a little bit different of an aspect when you read, when you understand what I'm about to read for you today. Alex Shrugged has the following set up for us. It had to start somewhere. John Castor is a black man who claims he is an indentured servant and that he contracted to work for seven to eight years But after 14 years, he's making a claim against his master to be set free. Who is his master? Anthony Johnson, who owns a large plot of land along the eastern shore of Virginia. Anthony Johnson is also a black man. He claims that there is no indentured contract and that John Castor is a slave for life. But with two witnesses, John wins his freedom in court. Unfortunately, Anthony is not done with John. He will take John to court to counterclaim. That one, that one of the witnesses, Robert Parker, had lied. The court will rule in favor of Anthony, and John will be forced to return to his service for life. Robert Parker will be forced to pay the court costs. So the guy that got uh, ponied up is saying, you didn't tell you the truth the first time around, ends up saddled with the court costs for what we would call today perjury or lying under oath. My take by Alex Shrugged. Please note that contracts for indentured service were not necessarily written documents. And a lot of people couldn't read anyway, so you could be waving a grocery list at them and they wouldn't know the difference. Thus, witnesses were very important to such disputes. This isn't the first English court case concerning slaves, but it's the first where the slave made an official claim for freedom through the courts. There were very few laws concerning slavery at that time, but the courts seemed more than willing to side with the master rather than the slave. I doubt that race entered into it in the sense that we think of race today. It was probably skin color that was more important. 
At the time, there was a strong belief that people with black skin were cursed by God. It was called the curse of Ham. One of the sons of Noah looked up his father's nakedness and was cursed, but no change in skin color is mentioned in the Bible. Neither do subsequent Jewish religious writings mention such an idea. So it was probably cooked up by the slavers to justify what they were doing. Yeah, no doubt. In fact, you know, when most people can't read, if the people in charge tell you that's what it means, then you believe what they say because they can read you can't, so they must be smarter than you. That's part of my take in this. I think that there is a, a, a belief that anybody that knows what we do not is in, therefore smarter than us. I think that's a huge mistake, and it's a way that many of us are controlled by society. I can use big words, and therefore I must be smart, and then you should listen to me, especially if I have a title to go along with it, right? So um, in, in that case, they just have learned something you haven't learned yet. Smart is the ability to learn, in my view. And then skills and knowledge are the things that you've used that to acquire. There are certain things that people learn to do that if they get to a certain level, you're like, they must be smarter, they couldn't have made it that far. But a lot of things that we think of as smart, just people that retain a lot of information, have studied and acquired that information or acquired that skill, that means you can do it too. So that's a way to keep people enslaved, just to make them believe that people with titles and certain knowledge are somehow better than they are. That's one part. The next part is, This story's been taken a little bit further than the reality. Basically, people that, that are, 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 frankly, as I am, tired of hearing about the fact that uh, today black people in America have less of an opportunity because of slavery, and it's 2015, are tired, and I'm, I'm, I'm up there with it. It's a terrible atrocity. It happened in the past. It's over. No one living today, no one living today, Uh, has ever been a slave of anybody. And it's, it's highly unlikely there's anybody, well, anyone living today in America has ever been a slave of anybody in America. Let me put it that way, because there's slavery still in the world today. Um, but the reality also is there's probably almost no one living who ever knew anybody that personally knew a slave. That's how far back we're going now. We're going back to 1865, uh, since that ended. So what people say is that a black man was the first official slave owner in the New World. That's obviously not true because there was slavery that was judged in court. Um, and it wasn't the first time that English court ruled on the issue of slavery. But it was the first time that a slave said, I desire my freedom. And I just don't think it fits with political correctness to be teaching our kids when they study American history, uh, and specifically pre-colonial or, or colonial American history, uh, to tell them the first person to actually prevent that from happening was a black man who claimed ownership of another black man. Um, it does matter. It, there's a lot of people who want to say it doesn't matter. No, it does matter. If we're going to take the political angle we are today, instead of just take the rational angle, which is one person owning another person is wrong. Let's look at another interesting legal aspect of this, though. Uh, take your morals and your ethics and put them aside and be the impartial thing that the court's supposed to be, judging the law, not what they think of the law. Many of us say that today, but we don't really think about what that means. So what that means is if you're a judge at this time, somebody comes forward, no matter what your opinion of slavery is, you're supposed to judge the law if it is. Um, wouldn't your first question be, sir, If your contract was for seven to eight years, and it's 14 years now, why did you wait six to seven years to petition for your freedom? And do you owe the man who clothed you and housed you and fed you for those years anything for staying there? And did that somehow pro provide 
uh, a tacit consent to continue your service. It's a weird thing to think about that that would actually be a legal consideration under the law of the past. So that brings me to my final part of my take in this. Just because something is the law doesn't mean that it's right. And we would like to believe that we've evolved as a society to a point where our laws today are far more just than they were in 1653. I believe that is the case on many, many issues, but it's not the case overall. We still have many things that are illegal that allow for one person to have their freedom taken from them and sent to places like jail or prison. And there is a difference, and if you've never looked it up, you might want to look it up and learn the difference between jail and prison. And uh, the things that they're doing don't actually harm anyone. And in some ways, the prison system and the jail systems of today for crimes that have no victim are worse than indentured servitude, not true slavery with lifetime control, but indentured servitude of the 1600s. Here's why. Let's say in the 1600s, I'm an indentured servant, okay? And I've signed away my freedom to my master for seven years. And that means that I work for almost nothing except food and food and clothing and housing. And believe it or not, indentured service and slaves were paid some small amount generally so they could see to some of their own needs, just like prisoners have jobs. And I complete my service. And uh, let's say I did this at a young age. Let's say I did this at 18. I was able to do it myself. I indentured myself. So now I'm 25. I'm 25 and I've been a slave for these seven years. And I have my freedom now and I go out and I look for employment with someone else. And I say, I'd like to have a job, please. And they say, okay, well, what have you been doing? I've been an indentured servant for the last seven years and here's all the things I learned while I was doing that. Is there any stigma to that really? Actually, there's not because I made a contract and I kept it. I could have run. I didn't. I fulfilled my obligation even when it was my own freedom. I come to you as an employee You're thinking, this guy keeps his word. I can trust him. Now, contrast that with a guy that's sent to jail or prison for minor drug charges, or at least what I would consider minor drug charges, whose entire rest of his life is destroyed and tainted because of a law to prevent him from doing something that might be not good for him and might be harmful to himself, but in no way actually harms society, other than maybe depriving the government of the theft they call tax. My take by Jack Spierko. With that, let's get into the uh, main topic of today's show. These are your questions and your feedback for me. Sent to Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Uh, with make sure you put TSPC in the subject line. And for this show, it'd be a great idea to put things like question for Jack, comment for Jack, story for Jack. And again, to help me with my screening process and get through things quicker, um, if you uh, make your point or give me your little blurb about the link you're sending me in a sentence, a single sentence, and they give me details underneath that with a couple spaces in between, it will make it where I can do it a lot faster. On that note, um, before I take your first one, I actually have an announcement to make today. I am considering the idea of having a assistant, uh, an administrative assistant that could work remotely for TSP. I've tried this before. It hasn't worked out very well. I'm very particular about what I want, but I think I tried to go too far too fast in the past. This wouldn't be a lot of work. It'd probably be, at the beginning, one or two hours a week. Um, if you're good and if you can't do it one or two hours a week, you probably won't keep the job. Uh, but it could lead to more. We'd have to see. It'd be like I give you one thing to do. You do that one thing, and then we see about doing something else. And you know, maybe eventually you figure out what kind of value add you can bring. And it could be a good opportunity. Maybe not. 
Person has to be rock solid, dead, dependable. Person has to be able to take direction. Person must be able to think for themselves. And the person must know the basic ins and outs of WordPress. If you do not know the WordPress blogging platform, do not apply for this. Um, if you're interested in this, I'm not going to tell you what you'd be doing in the interest of being short here. Uh, email me with TSPC admin in the subject line. Tell me a little about yourself and we'll take it from there. Okay, so now let's get into your first actual bit of feedback. First question I think came in actually for Nick Ferguson, even though it doesn't say that because of the type of question it is, but I can answer this one, so I'm going to do it. And it's a short one, and I'm going to try to do a lot of stuff really quick today so that we have a lot of topics condensed into a shorter time frame that I'm trying to do the show in. So it says, can I start new fig trees from fig roots? I have a fig in a pot that I live outside in the summer. This year, roots grew out from the bottom of the pot into the garden bed. If I take those roots and put them in a new pot, will new fig trees grow from the roots? Thanks, Chris. The answer is probably maybe. It depends on how big the roots are and what have you. But here's the good news. There's really no reason to do that. There's really no reason to do a probably maybe with figs. Figs are one of the easiest plants that you could ever propagate. And you can propagate them almost any time of the year. All you need to do is take a cutting from a fig tree. And I mean just any cutting, like what you would call a hardwood cutting uh, if you were using anything but a fig, because figs will just root any time. So uh, a piece of new growth, uh, but it, it doesn't have to be, you know, like green stem. It can be just a, like kind of cut the end off a branch, get a pot of moist potting soil well-drained, stick it in there, and water it. And keep it in shade until it starts to grow. There's a lot of other little tricks you can do to like propagate hundreds of fig trees or whatever. But if you just want to make like four or five new fig trees, it's as easy to propagate as mint. That's really all there is to it. So that's how I would recommend propagating fig trees. And here's what that means. Let's say you, you, you're at a friend's house or you're visiting somewhere and you see like this really cool fig tree. You can literally cut a couple pieces off that fig tree. And I would cut a piece about a foot long. To eight, eight, eight inches is plenty, I guess. And a couple of them, uh, wrap it in something to keep it moist around the base and don't let it get too hot. And, and that's it. And you can grow all the figs you want off of those cuttings. So uh, hopefully that helps you. A quick, easy, simple one. Let's go on to the next one. This one's a listener success story that I just find really inspiring that I wanted to share Uh, with you. It says, Jack, this is Bob from Florida. Yes, that Bob. I want to thank you for all the times you've answered my questions, both on the show and in private. About a year ago, I was lucky enough to get free admission to a small farms and alternative energy three-day conference being hosted by our, our county, by our county ag services, because I was able to supply goats and sheep for the conference at the last minute. Anyway, one of the exhibitors was a company that does tissue culture starts of many edible plants. Though we didn't Though we didn't think about it, this was the start of an idea. And then after listening um, to the start of your insurgency series, we decided in May to try something new. We ordered 150 starts from this company, goji, banana, thornless blackberry, and a failed, and a failed group of Stevens cranberry, and started growing them out to one-gallon size. Well, wouldn't you know... We didn't do our research, and we were just as likely, we were, and just as we were ready to go to farmer's markets, they all shut down for the summer. It's too hot here. So I kept listening to you, and I ju and just decided not to give up and kept ordering more plants about every six weeks. So as of last Friday, we have 15 different types of plants in six-inch 
one-gallon and three-gallon sizes for a total of 500 plants on our back porch. Now the good news. Yesterday was the opening of one of our local farmer's markets. After investing in a tent canopy, banners, and new business cards, as well as the plants in their care, we were ready and apprehensive. Well, we brought in a limited number of each type of plant, but it wasn't enough to pretty much fill our small trailer with room for a cart. By the end of three hours, the market was open, and we loaded our wares. By the end of three hours, the market was open, and we loaded our wares back on the trailer. And there was an awful lot of room on the trailer. It seemed we sold enough to match my wife's take-home pay for one week in three hours. At one point, my wife had to go home and get some one-gallon goji plants because we sold those out in the first few minutes. Another market opens in two weeks, which we will be, uh, which will be open every other Sunday, which we will also be attending, along with this one every Saturday. If we start making enough for my wife to quit her full-time job, she will start trying to get all the local landscape designers on board with edible landscaping to start buying more of our plants. We actually meet a few at the market, met a few at the market yesterday and talked to them and to offer our grown-out plants to local nurseries. We are already talking with local extension services about getting a grant for a 30-by-50-high tunnel so we can expand beyond our back porch. Now, as an encouragement to your listeners, we started this business right as I was turning 55, which is when many people in corporate America think about retiring. So you're never too old to move towards personal freedom. We are doing this while my wife and I both hold down full-time jobs. We already have a homestead with goat, sheep, rabbits, chickens, and ducks, which we also advertise along with our plants. Below is a picture my wife took of our booth during a lull in the action. Looks awesome. So, I mean, because I hear from guys all the time, you guys and gals, like, it's too late for me. I'm in my 50s. I can't do this stuff. Well, maybe, maybe you're right because you believe it, you know. Um, there's so many people who think they can't do this or they can't do that or they can't do the other and If you really need more motivation than me yelling at you, because I don't have the voice left after a workshop to yell at you, go to YouTube and type in motivational stories, and you'll see things that'll just it'll embarrass the shit out of you. You'll just think I have no excuse. You know, uh, I probably couldn't find it today, but I, I know one where there was a guy that was disabled, he was overweight, he had injuries from military service, and he wanted to learn yoga, and it was so bad that like every yoga instructor that he talked to told him no. And uh, there's a video of his transformation that when it's done, you're like, well, yeah, um, so I'm a lazy son of a bitch, and I need to get to work. And that's how I feel when I look at this. And some of you know what my work week's like. So I don't care what your age is. If you can fog a mirror, mirror, you still have opportunity out there if you'll go get it. You know. So, um, again, man, Bob, thank you, and I wish you the best and your wife the best. And keep building, man, because... That's what it takes is like an intention and then an action, right? Intention, ideas, concepts, they're all great. But until action hits, you, you don't screw up. And until you're willing to get out and screw up and make mistakes, you can't have success. What you have is like intellectual masturbation. Everything you do in your head works. And when you think about it, the, the action, you're thinking, well, you know what? It's not all going to work, so... I'd prefer to keep this fantasy in my head, and, and, and that's how you become 65, 75 years old and think, I wish I would have. Well, don't wish you would have. Intend and do now. No matter what stage in life you are, you can do something. You can do something to make your life better and more free. 
Thank you, Bob. Let's go take another one. Let's move on. It's uh, political and economic in nature to keep some variety in today's show. It's from Nathaniel. Nathaniel says, I'm all for cutting spending, but it just shows how broke Illinois is since they are doing it to be less broke rather than to cut spending. Um, so this is an article on ABC7 Eyewitness News. State to stop mailing vehicle sticker reminders. Chicago, Illinois drivers will no longer get a reminder about renewing their vehicle stickers. Secretary of State Jesse White said suspending the annual alerts will save the state about $5.5 million a year. The lack of a fiscal year 2016 budget is impacting the Secretary of State's office and threatens to jeopardize the services we provide to the public. Without a state budget in place, we are doing what we can to manage so that we can serve people of Illinois for as long as possible. As a result, difficult decisions like suspending renewal reminder notice mailings are decisions we are being forced to make, White said. Car owners who sign up to receive electronic reminder notices will continue to receive them by mail. White also said a PIN number is required to renew state vehicle registrations online. That PIN number is included in the reminders. Drivers who are not signed up to receive reminders via email will need to renew it in person. To sign up for the email service, go to CyberDriveIllinois.com. CyberDriveIllinois. Hmm. What does this make us think of? You know what? You're going to... There's a couple things here. Number one, um, if you are using direct marketing to increase your revenue for something people have to buy and you can't make it pay for itself, you're a moron. Only a government could do this. What do I mean by that? So when I, when I was in marketing, one of, one of the companies I worked for was a company called Sage Telecom. We had a marketing department of like nine people and like four handled things like direct mail and a lot of other things too. And those four people would use an analysis formula to determine who to mail, what frequency, what type of mailers. And every time they did a mailing to win back customers or get new customers, we made money. All the marketing was profitable. No one had to buy our product. In fact, we were selling uh, a landline product at a point where everybody was going to VOIP and looking for DSL. And because of certain dealings with the phone company, we couldn't do DSL. And yet we were able to make money selling the equivalent of a black and white television with direct mail. Uh, the state of Illinois cannot make enough money to justify the reminders with direct mail for a thing that will get you a ticket if you don't have it when you get pulled over. Then you don't need to be doing it in the first place and you never should have been. Um, and and I, I love this part of the quote. As a result... Difficult decisions like suspending renewal reminder notice mailings are decisions we are being forced to make. As though you're no longer providing flowers for orphans or something like that. A difficult decision to stop mailing people a piece of paper that threatens them if you don't buy your new vehicle sticker this year. That's what it is. Let's just come out and call it that. We are no longer going to send threatening letters to residents of our state that we think is a service to them. Because that's what a vehicle reminder notice is. It's a threatening letter. Dear citizen, you think of every you know dystopian future, they always call you citizen. Dear citizen, your extortion money to put a sticker on your vehicle is due. It's important that you do that. Make sure you do it. It's not a valuable service. Can you imagine how hard it's going to be for the governments of this country, specifically the state governments, who can't print money like the federal government does, to actually cut shit that, that actually is somewhat useful, that actually is in demand? 
Do you think anybody's really going to be upset about this? The first person gets a ticket, right? Because they didn't pay their extortion money for their sticker on their vehicle. Do, do, do you think there's an easier way to do this? Do, do, do you really? Do you think we could come up with one that would like just, just like not be a problem anymore? I mean, electronic reminders is a good idea. I wonder how many people are using them. Um, if you're spending $5.5 million a year to make these mailings, it sounds like a lot of people aren't. Well, it turns out that in, in Illinois, you, you need two stickers like you do in a lot of states, like we do here in Texas. In Texas, you have to have a vehicle registration and you have to have uh, an inspection. Why not just have your inspection services sell the, the, the uh, registration reminders or the reno registration renewals? Because people have to figure out that my inspection and stickers expired all by itself. Texas is, is kind of gone to this thing where you have to, uh, they actually stopped doing stickers, right? So now you just pay your extortion fee for your registration and you have to show that you did that with a card when you go get your, your inspection. And if the car has the inspection on it, the officer who's watching you and trying to get his ticket quote up for the month uh, by pulling you over for doing nothing wrong except having the wrong sticker in your window assumes if your inspection is valid, then your registration is valid. So that was, that was a way to not only cut the renewal reminder cost, but to simply not even you know uh, print stickers anymore. That probably saves Texas a lot of money. That, that, would, that would be one way we could do it. How about this? How about we just remove this? How about we just remove this requirement, this annual vehicle registration requirement? Well, it's a valuable service check because you have a license plate. On. Okay, then let's just, if we really believe we need the government to keep track of our vehicle for us, and for there to be this public record of our ownership of the vehicle, oh, that's a title. But anyway, I digress. You know, you have this vehicle, the serial number on the vehicle is registered to the owner with the state, and the state says you own your vehicle, then why not it be a one-time thing? Why don't we just do it once? Why, why is it annual? Because they should make money. But apparently they can't even make money with extorting people for registration of a vehicle. I wonder, if, I wonder if the state of Illinois is actually profitable with vehicle registration. I wonder if they are. See, I have this gut feeling that they're not. I really do. I have this gut feeling that if you actually looked at the total cost for Illinois to run their vehicle registration program, that it's actually a loss, that it's being run at a loss. So that the best way the state of Illinois could actually improve its budget would be to go to a one-time vehicle registration, very simplified process that would be taken care of by the notary that oversaw the transfer of the vehicle and a very small department that ha handles people that move to Illinois. Oh, wait a minute, we could just, holy shit, you know what we could do? We could just say this is a freaking republic, and that if your state was registered in another state, the new state recognizes it. Yeah, and, and then you just buy your license plate, and you wouldn't have to register it again. You, we could license plates. We need those. Do we really? I mean, do we really? Couldn't we use something more like a MAC address on cars today? Even if it was a displayed plate, you know. But we want to know what state the vehicle's from. Okay, we do license. We sell license plates. That's that's fine. But we could just have the one registration done. That vehicle's registered in the state of Arizona, even if the citizen that owns it, dear citizen, is in New York. Why the hell would you go from Arizona to New York? I don't know. But, for instance, yeah. I mean, we'll do it all the time and travel freely until they take residency. So, I don't know. If we just started examining this, you might just find, like, all these ways that, like, states do things that extort money from their citizens, but in the end they're not even profitable for the state. 
Like, I don't expect it to be profitable for a state to put in a road. Uh, tall as it could be. But in the end, I'm not looking for that, right? I don't expect that. But if the state's doing something that actually interferes with your rights, don't you think there should be a damn good reason for it? And further, if the state's doing something that they that you see as a actual service, like something that every single person that drives a car does, like have a registration, don't you think should, the program should at least pay for itself? I mean, if it was being run by anybody that wasn't a freaking idiot, like somebody that could do, like, I don't know, eighth grade mathematics, don't you think they could figure that out? Like, this should not cost money to do. And if it does cost money, then isn't it the easiest thing to stop doing it if it's not necessary? And is it necessary? I, I really don't think that it is. And even if you make the case, it is, is it necessary for it to be done every year? The car doesn't change. Its serial number doesn't change. Would there be a lot less work? Would there be a lot less cost? But don't look for the government to do it. See, my point is they actually like extorting you even when it's not profitable. Only the government can afford to extort people at a loss. Uh, my thoughts. Let's move on. Okay, um, question here is from Jaron. Uh, hey, Jack, I have a question about raising ducks on a small property for profit. Gee, I know a little bit about that. Okay, my wife and I are looking to buy a home with property where I can raise ducks and sell eggs, and there seems to be great potential in my area. No one is capitalized on the duck egg market. Asian markets here are selling duck eggs for a dollar an egg. Can't keep them on the shelf, and I can't find a single local provider. For what we can afford, we'll be, we will be able to find something with about a half acre to an acre of property. My question is, how many ducks could I realistically manage on a property of that size, considering I would like to also grow four or so large fruit trees, as well as a small garden large enough to put a few vegetables on a table? How, and also, how large of a pond could I get away with on a property of that size, and how many ducks could a pond that size support? What kind of maintenance would that pond need? I work full-time. be nice if I didn't have to go fill empty pools every day, but I will do what I have to. Our goal is eventually 100 ducks, but we'll do more if space permits. What say you, Jack? Um, on an acre, I'd say 100 is about the maximum I would do. It, it really is, but that's a lot of eggs, and it's a lot more work than you think it is. And as far as a pond goes, um, an acre of land, understand if I put in a, a third of an acre pond, I'm down to seven-tenths of an acre. If I look at the footprint of the house I, I might be down to six tenths of an acre if there's any outbuildings you know and then i just keep going down 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 now john dowie uh in new hampshire is running i think like almost a hundred ducks on his property uh but they only get out so much and his property is like a third of an acre or something like so it can be done uh but the, every time he saw ducks running around here he just kept saying i need three acres and it's because he sees the way the ducks are And I can't imagine three acres in New Hampshire would be so much better than three acres in North Texas. It really would. So John would have it going on if he, he could do that. Um, ducks can't go in a pond every day if you're going to raise the quantity you want to uh, on that kind of a situation without having some sort of rotation. It's not going to happen. It's not. You're going to have to come up with a water solution. And if you're going to do that type of intensity, you're going to change water every day. Period. A uh, hundred would be the maximum I would ever think about on a single acre. Maximum. I would not do that right now if I were you. I would start out with a couple dozen to three dozen maximum ducks. Um, 
I wouldn't even mess with Drake's. You can't afford to mess with Drake's on land that size. And if you do, I'd have like two. So the way you get two Drake's is you order like 36 female ducks, and up two or three of them will be misidentified Drake's. So you don't even order any Drake's. And if you get lucky, you'll you'll have all females. Um, and that's about it. And, and three dozen birds uh, in the peak of season will produce two plus dozen eggs a day for you. And that's enough to get started and learn your craft and decide do you really want to do this? Because if you end up deciding this is a flipping nightmare, this is not what I want to do, it's easier to get rid of, you know, two to three dozen birds than a hundred. It really is. Nothing else, it's a little bit easier to kill them all and eat them. So give yourself an out. I would say you could go start out with a, a, a dozen. I wouldn't go less than a dozen because you're not going to produce enough eggs to even begin to establish a market. So what you would do then is you step into this with, with a, you know, let's say a couple dozen to three dozen ducks and they're going to come into egg production at about 22 to 24 weeks. And then you give yourself a couple months of that production to see if you like the whole flow. And if you do, then you've kind of learned the whole process of brooding and what have you and bring in another dozen to two dozen ducks that six months later will start to raise the number of eggs laid. And then you'll be able to be producing, you know, three-ish dozen, four-ish dozen uh, through mo most of the year with a good laying breed. And if you like it, you can build from there. The other thing you'll do is by staggering that, when your birds come around to their first full year and a half at about 18 months of age, they're going to molt in the summer. If you have birds that are not a year old when that comes, not a full year old, they won't molt that year. They won't. And since they don't molt, when the first group is molting and not laying uh, eggs in any quantity whatsoever, that second group will be, and you won't have a lull in the action. And then you have to start thinking about that staggering pattern, and either you're going to have a time of year where your egg production is really, really low, or you're going to always be bringing some new birds in, which means sooner or later you got to face the reality that you have to cull some to keep that happening. And when they're molting, if you're going to pluck, it's a good time to cull them because they're already shedding feathers and it's a little bit easier. This is the fundamental reality if you're going to do this for profit on scale. And this is pretty small scale. And then you need to not mislead yourself. So let's say that we're producing three dozen duck eggs a day. Okay? And let's say we're selling them for eight bucks a dozen and making four dollars. Let's just say that. Okay? Let's, let's just say that. That's twelve bucks a day. Three times four is twelve. Twelve bucks a day. Now you know, can that pay for anything that we're doing? That's three hundred and sixty-four dollars and blah 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 fifty-six cents. Just ran on the calculator because there's four point three four weeks in a month. Check that out. It's not four weeks a month. Four point three four weeks in a month. Um, twelve dollars a day, seven days a week, eighty-four bucks times four point three four, three hundred sixty-four dollars and fifty-six cents. A month. Profit. That's a car payment. Nothing wrong with that. That's the beginning of agricultural income. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, but um, you're probably going to put enough hours in on that to make a whopping 12 bucks an hour. I mean, minimum hour a day. 
twelve dollars an hour. But it's fun. It's not really like work. You'll love it as long as you do it right. But that, like, I think sometimes people do that. Like, I'm going to start doing what Jack's doing and raise ducks for a profit. Great, okay. It, but is that what's right for a property like you're talking about, a one acre property? Um, can ducks work on a one acre property? Yeah. Um, can you run ducks at a lower number, produce eggs for yourself, and sell enough for the ducks to pay for themselves? Yes, and I would do that first. I would. That's what I'm saying. Two to three dozen maximum to get started out, and make sure you have housing and planning set up, and forget the pond. Forget the pond. That doesn't mean we can't do some things to not do it the way I do it. Set up some kind of automation with refilling and dumping and draining. Um, you're going to have to come up with some way to paddock them. You need a you, to do this right, in my opinion, based on the experience I have so far, and to not hate yourself. You want a location that's somewhat centralized to the property. You want to divide it up into to paddocks, and you want to train those ducks to go to that spot every night on their own. And you want to be able to just let them into one or the other. Now you can do exclusion fences, three foot high, simple fencing, cheap, few hundred feet of it doesn't cost you that much money. You will spend more money on the posts than the fencing. And you could put fencing low enough if you want. To. You could do two foot fencing where you could step over it and not even put any gates in. How does that affect your dogs? How does that affect your kids? How does it affect your wife? All these things you got to think about. If you want to run 150, 200 ducks, I'm saying you want to be looking for three acres, four acres, or more. And, and my property is not even ideal for it. It just works here. We make it work. Um, ideal situation running, uh, say, 250 ducks, really good small-scale production. I would want a five-acre property divided into five sections with about a quarter-acre pond on each acre. And then I could just let them go, and I could let them in that pond because they'd be in a quarter-acre pond for one week, and they wouldn't see it again for another five weeks. That works. Your scale, start small. How many can you do? I don't know is the real answer. I don't know because I don't know how good you're going to be at it. Uh, you didn't tell me what climate you're in, so I don't know that. You didn't tell me what your conditions are like. Like, Are you, are you going to be like me right now where half the property's brown? Nothing's growing, but they're eating grasshoppers? Or are you in some lush northeastern area where it rains all the time and everything's green and there's always good utilization available? Um, how many hours can you work a week with this? What do you know about life? I don't know how many you can run. How many can that property support? Even if you're good, it changes. Five acres here is different from five acres in Vermont. It's different from five acres in Florida. Five acres in central Texas is different from five acres in east Texas, man. Um, those are my thoughts. Go slow on this stuff. Because, you know, maybe quail are better for you. I don't know. Maybe it's easier. Maybe it doesn't have the demand of duck eggs. But maybe there's enough demand that it's more profitable with less work. You know, how does this fit in your lifestyle? Are you going to be okay dumping all those pools every day when they're full of duck shit? It's not duck manure, guys. You do it for a day, it's duck manure. You do it for a month, it's duck crap. You do it for six months, it's duck shit. It changes your head that way. Even if your person doesn't usually say the word, you, after you do it long enough and you rinse that sludge out of there every day, it's duck shit. Take it easy, give yourself an out, and then see if you can work it into. And then write me back two years from now and say, our property does support X and here's how we do it. I would also advise you of this. We can afford one acre to a half acre. Shoot for more. 
shoot for four or five acres. We can't afford it. You will never know until you try. And here's what happened. When we moved here, I shot for five to ten. I ended up with three. If you shoot for a half to, to one, you're going to end up with a third. Shoot for a higher number. See what's available. Negotiate. Look. Take your time. Because more than just ducks are riding on this. You're going to buy a house, find a property that's flexible to do, you know, if you decide this doesn't work, to do something else. Let's take another one. So this next one, I'm not even going to read you the article. I'll have it in the uh, show notes if you want to read it. But here's what the email says. It says, uh, this is from Ard. Hampshire College in Massachusetts no longer wants or accepts SAT, ACT scores from applicants, which has led to better quality students. And the article is on uh, telegraph.uk. And so when I first saw this, I said, Hampshire College, is that like one of these, um, I don't know, like DeVry-esque type schools? Like it's a good school, but it's like totally for profit and, you know, not really always recognized by other schools. And all. It turns out Hampshire College has one of the highest rates of students who go on to pursue master's degrees and, and, and graduate school uh, in the country. Extremely fine institution of higher learning by any way that we judge modern colleges. Uh, but uh, it's, it's funny. Um, U.S. News and World Report uh, publishes uh, annual rankings, and uh, Hampshire College is no longer included in there because they require that the college accept ACT and SAT scores. Hmm, sounds like cabal to me, doesn't it? You know, it sounds it sounds like like the establishment really doesn't like having its established stuff messed with because it used to rank very highly on there. But the president of the university basically said, the cliff notes of this very, very long article here are that, first of all, uh, students that come here with high test scores don't necessarily do well. In fact, some students that come with uh, bottom or lower end test scores, but good grades and good background and good aptitude do very well. And some students with great test scores do terrible. Uh, that some students just don't do well on that type of test, that standardized test, that with the pressure uh, of, of such a test, like your whole future hinges on these scores, Johnny, which is what parents stupidly tell their children. If you're telling your children that, you need a smack with a large frozen fish, something maybe like a rainbow trout. I mean, that's what you need to knock some sense into your freaking head. If you're stupid enough to tell a 15, 16, 17-year-old kid their future is, is, is hanging on a score they get for a test that, by the way, they can take it as many freaking times as they want, for the love of God, you people that say that need a smack. Um, in, in particular, lower-income groups uh, are, are adversely affected by this policy. And here's my take. like, If you have good grades from a school, unless I think that school's shit, um, then I shouldn't need to see standardized testing from you. I should look at what you took and what your grades were, and that alone should be good enough. And, and you got to think about this. The number of applicants went down. The number of students applying to go to the college went down. They, they still don't take every student. They still fill their roles. They, they didn't cost them any money. In fact, it saved them money. Uh, because since they're not including that, uh, they have less to go through and they have more engaged, passionate, robust applicants that make the screening process easier. But why would the why would the number of students go down? There, there isn't a uh, another college that won't take their credits and transfer. There isn't a school where if you want to go on to like a master's, a doctorate, etc., says oh, no that their their stuff doesn't qualify. Finally thought of institution, been around since a long time, 30, 40 years, something like that. Why would students not apply? 
because you have this whole group of students that has really great test scores, and that's all they're basing their application really on. Well, I have you know a, a score in the SAT, ACT of this, because no one really gives a shit whether U.S. News and World Report ranks you or whether the college that took you asked you for your ACT. So, has anybody here ever got a job and said, uh, "Well, yes, you have a degree from the school." Did they ask you for your SAT scores? Have you ever had a job where they asked a job interview where they asked you what your SAT scores were? I haven't. I haven't ever. By the way, I had good ones even though I didn't go to college because I didn't think college was right for me. Just saying. So the reason I included this, again, if you want to read it, it's a very interesting article. I just don't have time to get even half of it in today's show. Is what I keep trying to tell folks is that there's this evolution of education coming that's going to radically transfer what transform what education is in America. That there will be colleges closing their doors. That no one will believe it when it happens until it does. There will be there will be a you know everybody's talking about the, the student loan bubble. Well, student loan bubble is nothing. What you're going to have is a college uh, collapse bubble, right? So we have an education bubble. No one talks about this. Like a student loan bubble, a student loan bubble. Where does all that money go? Well, most of it, you know, either goes for tuition, books, or dorm fees. And then some of it gets pissed away by students who are able to figure out how to work that system and can't figure out why they're in trouble later on. But in the end, most of it goes to these universities. So what happens when the student loan bubble pops? It's not just a bunch of people that already graduated that can't pay their bills. It's a bunch of people that go, wait a minute, I'm not doing this. I'm not borrowing all this freaking money. It's not a student loan bubble. That would have been like uh, calling the, the housing bubble a mortgage bubble. It wasn't a mortgage bubble. It was a housing bubble that popped. right? It wasn't the mortgage industry that really got hurt. It was the whole economy based around housing. That's what's coming. You're going to see colleges that have been around for 100 years shutting their doors or radically transforming what they are. If a college right now isn't putting more focus on developing distance education than they are on maintaining their physical infrastructure, they will be out of business in 20 years. There is no need for this shit anymore. There will be people that want that experience of college life and from anything from a party school to the Ivy League, but the vast majority of people are going to realize that there's no point to that other than to extort them of their money. And I'm telling you, this is just another example. This is the this is the canaries that are starting to die in the coal mine when you see changes like this. So read the article if you want to know more. There will be a, a link in the show notes. So moving on to another subject, um, one of the things that I've said about this whole CO2 climate change thing is that this focus on carbon dioxide, which is the air that you're exhaling every time you take a breath, um, is extremely environmentally damaging. That this belief that if we curb CO2 emissions, we'll clean up the environment, everything will be wonderful, is misguided and moronic. And that this focus is actually creating more pollution. Uh, and I've been told time and time again that I don't know and I have no right to say such things because only a climate scientist can say such things, even though the vast majority of so-called climate scientists are only climate scientists because, well, there's money in that now and their actual degree isn't actually in like climatology or something like that. Um, but anyway, you know, it turns out, yeah, I'm right. Uh, this is in The Guardian. I'm only going to read a little bit of it to you, but I'm going to give you my thoughts on what I've been trying to explain for so long and seeing one place where it's happened. The rise of diesel in Europe and the impact on health and pollution. Well, there's CO2 and diesel. Hold on. Um, 
Volkswagen's rigging of emission tests for diesel cars comes after nearly 20 years of the technology incentivized in Europe and the knowledge that its adoption would reduce global warming emissions but lead to thousands of extra deaths from increased levels of toxic gases. Diesel was a niche market in Europe until the mid-1990s, making up less than 10% of the car fleet. Diesel produces 15% less CO2 than petrol, but emits four times more nitrogen dioxide pollution, or NO2, and 22 times more particles, the tiny particles that penetrate the lungs, brain, and heart. You can read the rest if you want. Here's the reality. Uh, the, the, The obsession... With CO2, which again is the gas that plants need to live and we all exhale, uh, led to a decision that since doing this would create cars with 15% less CO2, that would be good. And it created more pollution. This is one of many ways this has happened. And it's not just the things that it causes to happen, but the things we don't fix. Because, and, and, and guys, this is why they do it. The governments of the world are not really interested in your health. They don't really care. When you're sick, everybody in the cabal makes money off of you. We don't have a health care industry in America. We have a sickness and, and treatment industry. There, there's no drug companies really trying to cure disease because there's no money in the cure. The money's in the treatment. The money's in the treatment. If you actually cure a disease, then a person takes your drug once. If you treat an illness, they take it for a week, or all the drugs they're really working on are designed for you to be taken for the rest of your life. Have you noticed that? That all of the innovations in pharmaceuticals in the last 10 years have been, the, and all these drugs, you see them advertised on TV, start asking doctors about them and get them to speak honestly and say, well, a person taking this new drug, how long would they be taking it? Six months to the rest of their life is going to be a standard answer. Six months the rest of their life. There's no, there's no value for a pharmaceutical company putting all this research into a, a drug that a person takes for a week or is used for a week and they're cured. And, and, and that's exactly how they view pollution. Like, as long as there's pollution boogeyman, we can make people uh, believe that a tax is good. We can actually make people, and there are people begging for a carbon tax. They don't understand. It's going to cost them money. Every time they turn around, but they beg for it because they really believe the earth is going to blow up and explode. I've had people tell me that, that, that we were standing at a hotel nine feet above the oceans, uh, nine feet above the bay in California, and, and I had people that really believe that good people telling me, people don't understand in 20 years we'll be standing in water here. This hotel will be underwater. The hotel's like friggin' nine stories. It's going to be underwater. It is nonsense. If the worst of the predictions by actual uh, organizations that believe in this stuff are true, that have any scientific credibility, the worst predictions. It's not even close to a reality. But people believe it. We scare them. But what then happens? All the shit that's actually a problem doesn't get taken care of. Industrial ag, no one cares. The pollutions that come from industrial agriculture alone, just in the United States, dwarf the problem with, because that's what we're talking about, guys. I'm not saying that fossil fuels are great and we should just burn the shit out of them, but here's the other reality that they won't tell you. For 100 years, that's what we're going to do. For at least 100 years, no matter what they do, no matter how much of a tax they put on it, it's going to go on unabated because we don't have the technology yet to get away from it. But all the technologies that could be developed to do that are decentralized technologies. 
And all of, and they all lead to the same common solutions. They all lead to the reform of big farm and big, when I say farm, pharmaceutical, big pharmaceutical, big agriculture, big energy. It's all tied together. That's why the governments have no interest in actually solving the problem, just using it to divide you. You know, people, coal is so dirty because of the CO2. No, coal's dirty. The coal is dirty because of what it actually does. It, the amount of mercury. Well, it's, it's acidifying the ocean. Oh, I'm sick of that advert, uh, that 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 freaking uh, claim. Well, even if nothing else, it acidifies the ocean. The ocean is not being acidified. The the, the freaking pH of the ocean has not moved. It's it's a myth. You can look it up and, and bunk, debunk it for yourself if you want to. You're not going to change the pH of the freaking ocean. I mean, God, it's like it's like the people that believe in your your uh, alkaline acetic uh, diet, and you can think you can change the pH of your blood. If you change the pH of your blood in either direction, you're dead. I'm sorry. Do you want scientific fact? There's a scientific fact. But coal is putting massive amounts of mercury into our oceans. That is a pollutant. Okay, coal is it leaching sulfur into our groundwater that is oxidizing in our streams and turning them orange and killing all life in the streams. These are actual pollution problems. Here's an example, though. Read the article if you want. I'm done with that rant for today. Next one, I'll uh, I'll put up the article again, but I'm not going to read it. But just what the, like, the, the listener says, Bob says, the following article is from my local Allentown paper. PA is testing out turnpikes with no cash option. So if you don't have Easy Pass, they will scan your license plate. You've said for years, eventually Easy Pass or some other tracking device will be mandatory eventually. Scanning is even worse. There's no opt-out. There, this is the groundwork for a mileage tax. Well done in make the, making the prediction. I'm sorry it's coming true. And I'll put a link in this. This is not new. Texas has been doing this for years. Texas has taken its toll roads and decided, listen, uh, that stuff that Crazy Spirit Girl guy was talking about at the beginning of the show, like not running programs that aren't profitable when they could be, is dumb, even for government. So it, it looked at the, the, the toll system and said, all these people that stand in these booths all day long to collect money are not profitable. They cost us money. If everybody used Easy Pass, we'd be better off. And some technology salesman said, "You don't need Easy Pass. Look at these things. They scan license plates." And Texas also said, "All these people pulling in and out of these tollways, you know, they, 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 you know, pull, getting off the road, slowing down, speeding back up. This disrupts our traffic flow and that hurts our economy. It's better if traffic moves." So some technology salesman said, "Well, Easy Pass and this other technology I want to tell you about." You can drive through there at 85 miles an hour, and it, it works. You don't need them to slow down, stop, get off, whatever. You just click them where they're on and click them where they're off and send them a bill. And Texas said, tell us about this. So what Texas has now are high-speed cameras along all their toll roads. And you have two choices, get easy pass or pay more. Yep. Yeah, Texas sends you an extortion letter for the for the toll if you get, yeah, yep. Just like every other state, Texas sends extortion letters. So if you drive along a, a Texas toll road, uh, about a week later you get a bill in the mail, and you better pay it because if you get pulled over in Texas without paying that bill, man, it's a problem. Extortion letter. But it works, and it incentivizes people to get Easy Pass. When you do the math, if you like drive on a toll road routinely, and you go, I'm paying $100 a month in tolls, I could be paying like $35, $40, uh, and all i got to do is get an Easy Pass, people do it. When I used to drive the toll roads all the time, I had one. You were stupid not to. With what I drove every day, it saved me about $100 a month. Of course I had one. 
Duh. But, I mean, Bob's right. Why, why the hell do we need this? And that's the, see, that's the thing. Uh, Bob didn't give me credit, but I said that too. I said, we don't even need the tracking devices. I talked about this a long time ago too. All we need are cameras on the roads. Now, the reason they would prefer a tracking device is for a camera to work, I have to be able to see your license plate. And there are things you can do to disrupt a camera from seeing a license plate that do work. Um, and for a camera to work, the camera has to be there. It has to be oriented in a certain direction. And unless you track the, dis the time it takes somebody to travel from one camera to the next and have some kind of fancy computer thing going on there, it's kind of complicated for how, how quick that vehicle was moving. But if I just set up receivers for RFID information, it's a lot more... Well, first of all, it costs me a lot less to deploy a bunch of those sensors than cameras. So most of these cameras, they're just at access and exit points. Where when they use RFID tracking, they can track you all the way down the highway. And then it makes it much easier to go into neighborhoods and start putting up these little sensors so I can track you not just on the major roads, but the minor roads as well. Um, do a little bit of relay with that and some little GPS things and stuff like that. Maybe you're not tracking everybody all the time. You track anybody anytime you want to. Especially now with GPS is going in every new vehicle. Yeah, mileage tax is the beginning of this. This is so much worse. What you're what you're seeing is the government becoming Skynet, um, which many of you know that's from uh, Terminator. And I'm not saying about the rise of the machines; we're all going to die. Terminators are going to come and blow up the world. No, but the, but the Terminator did show one thing with that, and not so much the movie, but the ser the TV series. Uh, I, I don't know if they did more than one. A season of that, I don't know if it made it or not, but the, the the first season I did watch it, and at the end, this girl that's actually a Terminator, it looks like a teenager that comes back to protect John Connor when he's a teenager, because obviously you need a hot chick for something like that, right? Um, they end up hooking her into the traffic system in Phoenix, which is, by the way, just to point something out, from years ago in my technology sales days, one of the more advanced smart traffic cities in, in America They hook her into it to do something. I don't remember what, but when she comes back, he goes, did you see it or did something like that? And she says, I saw everything. That's what this is leading to. Our vehicles are us in this modern world. Our vehicles are us. They take us to work every day. They take us where we buy stuff. And you say, well, I know I won't drive to the store. Well, Look how much electronic tracking is going on with you buying stuff online. Companies are doing it for the demographic information, marketing research, but the NSA is recording everything that's going on. You're, you're literally watching the evolution of Skynet-like technology in America and all the developed world today. All the developed world. Did you know that, I mean, it's been forever in England, you need a license to have a television set? When you buy a TV, you have to buy a license for it. They know where every TV is. Seriously, no shit. That's not new. But start thinking about it. So that's what governments actually want. They want to know where every every screen is. Because the screen's going in your car now. The screen's in your phone. We can track the phone. We can track the car. How about that? Uh, it, it will be no time at all. In fact, I would say right now, the person that owns the car that doesn't own a cell phone is a rarity. If airlines will accept your phone with a thing on it as your ticket, because they can scan it, how long is it before your driver's license is on your phone? Show ID. There's an app for that. Seriously. 
How many people, I mean, I, without my phone, all the time. Most people have their phone in their pocket at all times. So you don't have to control everybody, just most people. The people that are looking to control, they're not even worried about the people that don't want to be controlled. They're like, they're, if you control 90% of society, that's enough. If 90% of society is a bunch of dumb sheep, you build the control mechanism for 90%. 10% are looked at as idiots and loons and conspiracy theorists and tin hatters. And of the 10%, like half of the 10% really are those things. So there's only like 5% of rational people that break from the herd. So you don't worry about them because they'll get lumped in with the other 5%, the, the nut jobs, right? And and when you tell somebody that that's what this is about, that's, oh, come on, come on, it's just Pennsylvania trying out this new way to pay. I That's what it actually is. The, the action itself, right, the state putting in a system that takes a picture of your license plate, that allows them to charge people that sign up for a service one fee, charge everybody else another, take down all of the toll booths, not have that incredible cost burden. That's what it is. But what happens when the capabilities of that technology go to a state? Do you think the state's going to go, you know... We, we, we shouldn't use this because it's a violation of our citizens' rights. We're such good, honest people that run government that we'll never use that to our own ends. And once they start to peel back the potential, what do you think's next? You think they'll say, you know what, we've gone far enough? If you had told somebody in 1995 that in the year 2012, 13, 14, we'd be talking about a data center in Salt Lake City, Utah, that was literally recording the actions that every American takes at all times on the Internet, so much so that they would be using millions of gallons of water a day just to cool the computers. Do you think they would have told you you were a conspiracy nut? But yet that's what they're doing today. They don't even deny it. They don't even hide it. The president told you not to worry about it. They're monitoring his activity, too. I mean, seriously. So if you don't think that, that this evolution of technology, and I saw this because when I was in technology sales and selling hardware, I had two main client bases. I had governments, and I had telco, telco providers and, and OEM manufacturers in the telco space. So we did carrier class, and we had rugged equipment, so we did some oil and gas too, but really it was like the highways. And this smart traffic technology, ITS, not our good buddy Brian Black, you know, but intelligent traffic systems. I was selling hardware to those guys in 2004, 2003. I mean, this isn't new, but the adapt the the adoption is new. You know, what happens is a state realizes that the county, uh, it, the counties in its its larger metropolitan areas have put all these cameras in, and they've done that with the intention to do better job with traffic. Because if you have a wreck in Tarrant County, somebody knows almost immediately. And there's a, a major control center. It looks like friggin' NASA, right? And, and there's screens everywhere, and they pull it up, and they know exactly how everything's being affected. And they, I mean, they use it for what it's meant for. I've been there. I've seen it. You know, it's not all so they can do this evil shit. They send people to clear the roads. The officers responding have a certain amount of time. Get those vehicles off the road. Open up the traffic flows. This is hurting our bottom line. In the end, governments profit from commerce. You slow down traffic, you slow down commerce. But so then the states start looking at this going, wow, 
That's some pretty awesome shit. Let's put it on the highway, the interstates. Right? So they do that, and then somebody sits back and goes, wow, we have a lot of information. Now, how can we use this? And guess what? Some technology company that wants money from government, because government's check always clears, comes along and says, let me show you. Check out this. We can do red light cameras now. You can have one cop sit in a place so it's official and go, yes, no. Every time the computer says somebody ran a red light, he can just hit rewind, watch it, and go, yep, red light. That one cop can do a thousand red light tickets a day. He could never do that out on the street. Here's how you set it up as a municipal offense instead of a, of a true traffic criminal offense so that you can get around your state's constitution. Oh, we like that. How much is it? $9 million. dollars. Hmm, the city has kind of a tight budget. Don't worry, our projections are you'll make uh, $20.5 million dollars off in the first year. Expel spreadsheet comes out. Stakeholders are convinced. Red light cameras go in. And then when they tell you what, it's for your safety. Right? So once those are in, and you start having all this technology involved in our interstate system, and you can tell where everybody is when everybody's there, you, you, you don't think that's going to be used against citizenry? Have you not paid attention to what's going on in this country? And it's coming, a mileage tax. That's, that's what's coming. That's what's coming. And then all of this, you know, and you'll see the reality of all this talk about fossil fuel use as the cars do get more and more efficient. And they have a tax base based on mileage. And they actually let that technology develop at that point. Because right now, guess what, guys? If everybody went out and bought a Prius, um, this country could not afford to maintain its, its, its highway infrastructure. We would have a mechanism for it. And then the global oil market would go in a catastrophic downturn. And, and that would be good, right, according to all the hippies, except, well, there's so much of the government built around the economy functioning a certain way. It would throw government revenues into shit, too. Now, in a free market, it would turn into an amazing thing, but we, we don't have that, do we? I'm just saying, uh, when this, when this redneck, deck, uh, redneck duck farmer from Texas, who's the son of a Pennsylvania coal miner, tells you something's coming, just as another example of it, yeah, it's coming. By the way, just quickly before we move on, the only reason that states like Pennsylvania are behind states like Texas in the implementation of this technology is the protectionist uh, union uh, job environment in the northeastern United States and into the, in the north midwestern United States. Um, in other words, the people that have those jobs are unionized in those states, and it's not as easy to just take down Uh, the, the turnstiles, like we did here in Texas, the state just said, we don't need that job anymore. So that's, that's the only thing that held that up. Uh, next one comes in from James. I'm going to make this short because this, this show's not about running events, but I do have a few things I could add, especially having just run another TSP event. He says, in episode 1643, you talked about needing a helper position for a workshop. Do you have any thoughts or suggestions on any words, when else trying to run a workshop? I know a lot of people try, but, hey, you're right, a lot of people do try, but, um, I would tell you the best thing you can do with workshops, unless you have a place to draw from, like you're going to run your first workshop, and you don't have a podcast with thousands of listeners to draw from. You don't have a blog with tons of email followers, or you don't have a partner that has that to do pool for you, or uh, what have you, is to start small. Do something like one day, one day, and that's it. Uh, run low-cost stuff. Learn the skill, the the, 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 the practical nature of running uh, a group event like that. Put together a meetup group and, and just get together people to do whatever it is you want to do with it, whether it's 
you know, homesteading or permaculture, what have you, just get some people together and, and start to f develop your own formula. Um, you get into bigger stuff. Like what I, what I believe is you give people a good education and a kick-ass party at the same time. I mean, that's, that's what I try to do here. I try to feed people where they're like, holy crap, we're eating what? We're eating what? Duck sauces with cognac? And then a band's playing? Like a real, honest-to-God, good band? Like guys that you know, tour and play in Nashville and stuff? Really? I mean, that's, that's what we did this time. Right? So that's what you're trying to get to. But we didn't start there. I mean, our first workshop did have like 30 students or something at it. So we had pretty big, and it was three days. But we had, you know, I had run seminars in the past. I had run events in the past, never at my house. Um, and I came out and said, I'll screw, I'm going to screw up, but I had demand. So it made it a little easier. If you don't have demand, I think one of the first things you have to do is build demand. You build demand with word of mouth. You want people to want to come back. So I think it makes a lot of sense to run smaller events. But like, so Bill Wilson was just on and understand what you're doing there. You're running it to build up momentum and to learn your trade. Cause you know, he stopped doing all his short like weekend ones and all cause he's like, I don't make any money on them. And it's almost as much work to do get ready to do one of those as it is to do something bigger. So as soon as you have the students, go bigger. And then do the numbers. Know the math. Know what your profit is. Because, you know, people say, well, that guy's charging 500 bucks, and he got 20 students. Wow, that's $10,000. He probably has, if he knows what he's doing, $6,000 into that event. He's making four grand. Uh, and when you work out the hourly on that, all the prep work, the after work, the interference, he's made minimum wage, at least for the first one. You did That's a home run. Freaking home run, right? Um, if he doesn't know what he's doing, he's either got 10 grand in the event, makes no money, or it took six grand, but it cost him another four grand of his time that he didn't realize and lost revenue in other streams, and he's break even or at a loss. Or he's got two grand in the event. And then he's going to have students that feel like they got ripped the F off. You got to deliver value. You got to deliver value. Next thing, pay people. Not just the helper that you pay, but like if you bring somebody in, you know, give them a few hundred bucks at least, hundred bucks a day. If you, if you have an event where the money, you got to run Excel Never Lies. It's like Darby Simpson says. But a hundred bucks a day, something like that. Pay their travel. I brought John Dowie in. You know, I bought him a plane ticket. You know, that type of thing. Um, you know, at least when they're officially an instructor at your event, do something for them beyond you get to come for free. Because that makes them want to come back. Because if they're good, then you taking them out is going to cost them money. Uh, it, it, it just legitimately, like, they're not doing their profession, so therefore... They are not making money doing that, and they're sacrificing to be there. So at least compensate them something, I guess. Uh, really focus on the food. Really focus on the food. The food is so important at these things. I mean, and make sure it's what you really want to do. Like, why are you doing it? Why are you doing it? Like, if you're only doing it because, well, I can get, like, uh, $5,000 worth of work done on my property, and it won't cost me anything... Don't do it. I'm not saying don't. I'm not saying it's bad if that's the byproduct, right? But if that's your only motivation, right, then don't do it. Because first of all, it probably won't be done as good as it would have been done if you had just paid for it. 
You're going to be completely disrupted during the entire process, and you're not really going to be able to oversee it. Um, you're not going to even realize the things that weren't done right until a week later when you finally come down from everything and everybody's gone. Um, and you're going to be stressed out. And what you're going to be focused on is getting the work done versus taking care of your students. Right? So if the motivation is that, just don't do it. Go out and deliver pizzas for like two months and make a lot of tip money and, and, and figure out how to pay for it. And do it at the right time because you're never going to do it at the right If you want to do something at the exact right time, like timing is important to the installation or whatever, it's very difficult to do that and get it perfect when you're involving students because you have to schedule based on a lot of other things. So do it for the right motivation. Um, you know, my motivation with my events, camaraderie. I mean, I build relationships with people at these events. Even people I don't get to talk to that much, they don't realize, like, I remember you. I might not even remember your name, but I see you at another one, I remember you. Or when you email me and tell me, well, I was the guy with the chainsaw, Jason, right? I'm like, oh, yeah, I know you. And, 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 and that's there. And they end up, you know, with opportunities with other people. Like, so you have to be about building community with these things. It's not just about getting people to, to show up. And I don't know. I mean, that, that's as much as I can do right now. But that, that's that's all I can say with with events. I think there's an awful lot of seminars and events in the sustainable ag, permaculture, survival, etc. thing being done. And I don't want to put anybody down doing them, but maybe not for the right reasons. And I don't mean like nefariously or bad, but because the goal is just profit or because the goal is just getting stuff done, um, there's not enough attention to what it's really all about. If you have 20, 30, 40 people coming to your property or to a place where you're running something, it's about them. It's not about you. And if it's if you're not going to make it about them, don't do it. And, and if you make it about them, you'll find out that it's very beneficial to you. If you make it about yourself, you'll find out that it does very little for you. Because people will feel used. Um, no one wants to feel, feel used. The, the word has... A, a, almost like a filthy feeling to it when you think about it, right? Like if, if people come to something and they feel like they were just used, it's one of those words that when people say, I felt like I was used, they're disgusted. And you might not attend that, but if you don't, if you don't consciously make sure that that doesn't effing happen, there's a good potential that it will. And I, you know, I went to several, other people's workshops before I did one of my own. And some of the time I went because I wanted to meet somebody, you know, that I thought was awesome. Or I wanted to meet you guys because I knew some of you would be there or whatever. But there were times when I felt used, sometimes a little bit, sometimes a lot. And I went, like, I didn't know that was going to happen, but I went to see, like, I want to go to some of these other ones and see what would I, what would I, when I was done, say I didn't like about it. And then I want to go back and put mine together and not do that. So I think that would be my best takeaway from this. If you want to do events and it's going to be a significant revenue stream for you. And if you do four events a year at five grand an event and profit, that's $20,000 that you're not going to live on that. That is a significant increase in income. And I believe someone that's good and works hard could do that and change their life financially. Just from that one thing, four quarterly events, one in each of four regions. For something. I didn't have to be survivalism or permaculture. It could be, I don't know, for 
Don't do knives. There's like 4 million knife shows already. Well, maybe you should because there's a market. I'm looking for some random thing. Reptiles. There's a couple big reptile shows out there. There's plenty of room to expand that. Um, but that's not the kind of event I do. That's like this. Like You want to get 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 people involved. But there might be something, if you're really into reptiles, like I used to be a long time ago, to put together events that are just for breeders. To learn about new morphs and trends in the industry and things like that. Like, how do I know that word morph? Because I was in that industry. So, like, if you're thinking right now, wow, there's an opportunity in reptiles, Jack says, so I'm going to go do this this awesome reptile show, and I'm going to bring in people, you know, like um, Bill Love and uh, Don Soderberg, right? I'm going to bring those two guys into that. I'm going to have them talk about corn snakes. Um, so the two of you, the two of you, I'm sorry, the two of them uh, are, are probably bigger names than, than you can imagine in the world of reptiles. But if you're not a reptile enthusiast, specifically somebody um, that, that cares about corn snakes and other rat snakes, it, you, the name means nothing to you. But let me tell you something. There's, there's probably more people out there that, that think those two people are badass than that people think that I'm badass, right? Seriously, like in their world, they are rock stars. Now, how do I know that? Because I used to live in their world. So that's that, that's like if you want to do events, do it in the world you live in. Like do it the thing that really does it for you. Because I, I know there's big reptile shows. There's shows where people bring in 10,000 animals and set them up in Dixie Cups. And the public comes through and buys them. But I don't know of something where you bring in the top 100 uh, breeders in the industry. It's by invitation only. You invite 300 and, and, and take the first 100 that show up and take the top people speaking to people where they can speak instead of down to their level at their level and bring them up and create the, this level of camaraderie that tries to exist at those trade shows but can't all those guys want to get together they all want to spend time with each other but I've been to trade shows in many different industries you're lucky if you get a chance to have a beer with three or four people can you imagine a kick ass camp out show with the top 100 people in any industry Think about it. Think about the value of the networking and the idea sharing. See, that's so now I've, I've just created a new industry in my head in five minutes. That's why I say ideas are worthless. I'm not going to do that. I don't have time. I don't have time. I'm not going to have time. Can you imagine if you said, I'm going to take the top 50 in an industry and I'm going to take 50 people that want to learn about that industry and put them together? People that are like 50 pros and 50 good amateurs. What do you think the amateurs would bid to be one of the 50? And and not have one guy. Like, it's not just Don Soderberg. How do I know Don? Because I gave him some of my animals when I got out of the business. He's a cool guy. Like, he doesn't understand why people want to talk to him. He doesn't get it. He's a guy that breeds snakes. But instead of one of those, there's 50 of those. And there's only 50 people that are, I mean, there's a lot of ways to do this. So, like, be creative. Don't just, like, there's some people out there now emulating my workshops inside the community, asking me to promote them and doing them exactly the way I do, following my model. You guys know who you are. They're awesome guys. Great. I will help them. But look, don't limit yourself to that. Right? If something works, sure. But you could take my scheduling, my formatting of my events, look at it, probably make it better, because it's not what I do for a living, and apply it to any industry. I'd rather have guys hanging out around a campfire, no matter what, whether they're talking about computers, snakes, survivalism, prepping, homesteading, model rocket engines. I don't care what. I'd rather have them around a campfire than a hotel room, uh, a hotel, uh, you know, bar.
Things are totally different in that, that environment. I think there's tremendous opportunity in just the event world if you don't try to do only what everybody's already doing because in the end, there's only so many people to pull into events like that. And you really, you really make these things something by creating something new. I'd like to believe, and somebody out there that's been to my events and other events, please tell me if I'm wrong. I'd like to believe we, we created a whole new class of events within like the homesteading and permaculture space that, 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 that there is nothing in it like it. And it, when you've been to one that is, it's been inspired by or maybe even supported by what we're doing. And, and that makes something special. And the guys would just here know that, man. It's awesome. I have people that, I love when I learn shit, but I don't care. I come here because it's just awesome. I mean, that's the experience you want to give people. I hope that helps. Another listener-inspired story, getting things done type thing. Uh, this is Brett from Kansas. Uh, a lot of you guys, you know, email me and tell me you're, you're, you're working on one day doing a podcast too. And I'm like, just do it. Just do it. Okay. Well, here. Um, it's amazing what kids will do that adults won't because kids are freaking fearless. And then they're, they're awesome because of that. Dear Jack, I know how much you stress the importance of teaching the next generation. I want you to let you know that your words ring in my ears every day. My seven year old son and I now have started a podcast with aspirations for much more. More on this, one night I was sitting with my son in a lazy chair and I was messing around with my mic microphone pretending like I was interviewing him for a podcast show. He instantly showed interest and it actually turned into a good show. Immediately after the 20 minutes of recording, my son said he wanted to make something out of our ramblings. He started talking about a YouTube and more podcasts, a website, and working to get 100 listeners. Remind you, he is seven. His entrepreneurial spirit comes from me teaching him the importance of following your dreams to work hard and be independent. I don't want him to rely on a traditional job all his life. So immediately, as you have always said, we just did it, and it's off the ground. We have miles to go, but we started it. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice is gone, guys. And we are moving forward for now. I am so excited that he will learn how to succeed as well as fail and how to overcome obstacles. I hope that my willingness to help him just dive in will help his future and teach him if he wants something. Wishing it won't get it. He has to go for it. This is the lesson I learned so well from you. <laughs> get off your butt and do it. That's almost right. I am so excited to get Makers on Acres popular, but I know it will be a rough road. I'm looking forward to my son seeing the ups and downs of starting a business venture. I know you are completely booked for guests, but I would love to do an interview with you sometime. I would love other fathers to hear our story of how much I try to pass on my knowledge to my son. I believe your youth, that our youth is our future, and we had better give them the tools they need to succeed in the coming future. My eventual goal is a kid's maker space in our small community of 3,000. Thanks for all your inspiration, Jack. You have changed our lives for the better. So it's makers, of, makers on Acres. And uh, I will put a link in the show notes to that podcast so you guys can listen to it. Uh, as far as being on this show, Brett, just um, just watch the site. I mean, I think it's like another couple of weeks. We'll put the guest form back up, fill it out. Uh, and that's for everybody. Like, there's no magic way, like, to get on my show. Like this, obviously, you're going to get on my show. But you, you fill out the guest form, and unless you suck and don't follow the instructions, or when I check you out, you're some kind of loon that wants to tell us how aliens living underground are going to take over the Earth, uh, and we're all just say, you know, maybe you should check out Coast to Coast. They're more in line with your thinking. Uh, otherwise, I'm going to let you on the show. I mean, I, I prefer people who are just getting started in many instances as long as they're doing something. Like, if you're not doing anything, don't waste your time. But if you're actually doing something, get in touch with us. We'll get you on. But do it through the form on the website. Um, in fact, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll come on your show. Um, it's hard to do for me anymore with the time burn that I have, but 
You know, I mean, if you get your kid to do an interview, then I'll give you an interview. So uh, if I can help you, man, in any other way, let me know. But as far as getting on my show, you can send me all the emails you want about it. Until the form comes back up, there is no form. With no form, there's no booking. That, that's how it works. And there's a little business advice for you. Why do I do that? Because it's a process. It's a process based on a procedure and a protocol. Like These are fundamentals to running a business successfully. Process, procedure, protocol. And I'm not going to go into what each one are. But the process is the form, right? The procedure is you completing the form. And the protocol is what we do when the form comes in. And our protocol is unless that form comes in, we don't do anything except send you a link to the form or tell you it'll be back soon. Why? Because my wife runs that side of the business, and if I screw with something, I mess things up for her, and she can't do the job that I entrusted her with. That's the way businesses are run. You set up things. Now, it doesn't mean you're not flexible. Somebody got a backdoor to the form today. I won't say who, but you'll like it when you find out very soon. Okay? So there's times we make exceptions. But then that exception has to be run through the protocol anyway. Like, here's the back door to the form. You still fill it out, and everything goes the same from there. All that's changed is the general public can't find the form right now. Right? So anyway, I, I want to say something, though, about, like, it's awesome that your kid's this way. Because, like, so John Dowie was telling me he's been a few places now and taught people about the microgreens thing and the greenhouse thing that he did here recently. And he says people like come up and say, well, I'm, I'm thinking about doing that, and I'm thinking about doing that, and I'm going to do this. And he's like, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're not going to do anything. Like He just says the way they say it, and I'm like, I know what you mean. And he's like, you know what's cool about being here? Like, Not everybody's going to do this, but when you ask people who's going to do it, like a small number of hands go up and go, yeah, I'm going I'm to make a run out of this. right? Everybody else just kind of wants to learn about it as a skill set or whatever. But the people that say they're going to do it, like you look at them and they have a different look. Like, yeah, I'm going to go do this. Like, they mean it. Like, they don't make a big deal out of it. They don't, and they don't ask a thousand questions. They ask, like, ten really freaking critical things to actually doing it right. You know, John, I want to send out a thank you to John, man. Um, I'm putting out all the video we took of the event. And there's more video of this event than ever. Most of the videos that we have range from one to two hours. That's so much content. Like, the videos are like being here without really being here. Um, they're not edited. Uh, some of the things in them technically technologically aren't that great. Um, only the speakers are mic'd, and when there's questions, we do our best to repeat, but that doesn't happen. You know, and, and, and you're one guy working a camera all day long uh, without professional gear, there's times when it teeters and stuff, but, you know, the the three sessions John did on microgreens, I, I don't think I'm, I'm going to talk to him and find out. I don't think I'm putting those out to the general public because of what he gave away on them. I see a, a product for him in that, and I don't want to destroy his product. Because he gave away shit. You don't, I told the class after his third session, you guys need to understand what just happened. This guy gave you stuff that you just don't give away. You just don't do it. Exactly how to talk to people. Insider industry language, right? So when a guy like that comes in and looks at people and says, these people are going to do it, you know, that means it's going to happen. And, and, and Brett, man, that's, that's awesome that your kids like that. Now, I want you to think about something, guys. I keep talking about, you know, how the educational system sucks. Okay, who do you think is going to be better off? A kid that at seven years of age 
uh, learns his timetables really, really fast and makes his teachers happy and gets an A and a gold star, or a kid that by eight years of old knows how to set up a YouTube channel, how to do basic editing, how to report a podcast, how a basic website works, and is working on a goal, succeeded or not, of getting a hundred people to listen to what he's saying. Who, who do you think is going to be better off when they're 25? Huh? Why aren't we teaching kids this shit? You know why? You know why? Because it creates people that have an unlimited potential in their lives. They, they just go, I can, I can actually learn anything I want to learn. And if I'm good at it, I can create an opportunity for myself in it. I can either do it by actually doing it and selling a product, doing it and selling a service, mastering that and consulting for other people as an entertainment slash educator or as someone that works on that on an endorsement deal. I can actually live the life uh, that, that people do uh, as, as big-time business people on a smaller scale or celebrities on a smaller scale or whatever I want. And I can put as much into it as I want to get as much out of it as I earn if I learn the rules and follow them. Not the, not the rules of society, but the rules of business, and the rules of technology, and the rules of marketing. If I learn to not hate money. I mean, that was my catchphrase at this last event. Why do you hate money? And I was pointing out all these stupid things that, that people do to leave money on the table, including some present company, not to embarrass anybody, but to like drive home. Like, this is how businesses fail. This is how businesses fail to make enough revenue to pay the bills. This is how businesses that could be better never become better. This is the, the entrepreneur says, I'm waiting for things to pick up. If you're waiting for things to pick up, you're waiting to go out of business. Yeah, quote that today. There's my quote of the day. If you're waiting for your business to pick up, what you're waiting for is to go out of business. You cause your business to pick up. You don't wait for it. Um, here's a question that is from somebody in scarcity, but actual scarcity, right? I mean, there's perceived scarcity, but there's times when we all go through scarcities. I remember eating stovetop stuffing and ramen noodles too, which is where this guy is. He says, hey, Jack, due to a recent divorce and custody battle, I got full custody of my two boys. I will have no money because I got stuck with all the lawyer and legal fees as well as 95% of the debt we have for marriage. I've reduced my diet to ramen noodles until I can pay things off with tax returns. Is there anything healthy for the near... Uh, near the same cheapness as ramen noodles. Thanks for all you do. Um, yeah, there is. Okay, first of all, um, if that really happened to you, um, if, if it's going to destroy your life for more than seven years, it, it's time to look at the bankruptcy option. If it's going to destroy your life for like three years, then it's not. But it takes seven years to get the stink of a bankruptcy off you. If this is going to ruin your life for ten years or more, I, I'd consider that. It's not my first choice. I'm just throwing it out there. Like I wouldn't call I would call anybody who had to use the bankruptcy laws a loser. I really wouldn't. Or think anything ill of them, especially when this type of thing happens. Um, now, I usually don't think it's the case that it's necessary. But if it is, there are fundamental realities that no amount of motivational talking may go away. That's why we prep. Right? So there. Now on health, um, gee. How can we eat better than ramen noodles? I'm going to throw a word out that people never hear me use because I, I don't generally like the products made from it, but how about wheat? Um, when we look at what we can do for wheat, you can cook it in a thermos. You basically add hot water, uh, wheat, and some salt to a thermos. 
and you let it sit in a thermos overnight, you eat it the next day. Um, now, is that paleo? No. No, it's not paleo, right? Um, but it, it's, it's no less paleo than ramen noodles. It's probably a hell of a lot better for your whole wheat. Uh, and what would be the cost? We could go somewhere like Honeyville Grains, <clears throat> and you could get a 50-pound bag, 50-pound bag of hard red wheat uh, for 50 bucks, 50, 50 bucks roughly. And ground shipping, UPS flat ground rate shipping on it, Honeyville will ship that 50 pounds of red hard winter wheat to you for $55. So a little over a dollar a pound. That's a dry weight. Um, when... When you cook wheat, you, you end up with about triple uh, that you end up that you can eat. So that's 150 pounds. Now, am I saying you should eat this every day? No, but it's is you, what you asked me for was something comparable in price to ramen noodles um, uh, that would that would be better for you. Does anybody doubt that whole hard grain organic red wheat is better than ramen noodles? Um, the other place you can look is beans. You know, Dave Ramsey talks about beans and rice, and, and then you can have rice and beans the next day. You know, you add rice and beans to that and go with dry beans. And look what you can buy, uh, it, you know, two pounds of, of beans, of, of dried beans at a store. So, so that starts to do that. Then as far as, you know, adding some meat back in, so you know, I, I hate to say by Purdue or whatever, but just chicken thighs. Like whole giant, big giant bags of chicken thighs. Like 79 cents a pound a lot of times at the store. You smaller amounts of meat mixed in with beans and rice. I mean, right there, your, your nutritional profile kind of sucks as far as I'm concerned. But compared, I mean, seriously, compared to ramen noodles, you know, I mentioned stovetop stuffing, right? Well, what is, and I ate a lot of that when I was, uh, when I was, uh, broke. Uh, what is stovetop stuffing? It's herbed, uh, crumbled pieces of stale bread. So if you're going to do something like that, what you do is you go to like, you know, a grocery store and in the backs of the grocery store, you usually see these great big racks. And in those racks will be loaves of like the artisanal breads, right? Like the, 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 the really high end, you know, breads itself for like four and five dollars a loaf. And they'll be marked for like 99 cents or a dollar 99. So since you're going to make stuffing out of something like that, like a really great stuffing, you pick maybe two different breads for a blend, and you don't worry that they're a couple days old. They're still fresh, by the way. You could eat them as bread. But instead, you take them home, you cut them up, and you put portions of them in the freezer so that they don't just go really bad. And you take enough to make stuffing, and you cut it into cubes, and then you just set it on the counter, and you let it go stale and hard. And then you do something like you use chicken bouillon uh, to, to, or chicken stock or chicken broth or whatever, uh, but cheap. You want to go cheap. Okay, you go get uh, a, one jar of better-than-bouillon chicken stock maker, and you take a teaspoon of that to a cup of water, and then you boil some water, and you throw some dry herbs in there and maybe some dehydrated onions, which are pretty damn cheap as well, a little bit of parsley, which you can buy a big giant thing of that you could probably find at like the dollar store, like his parsley is not going to go bad. So the big herb things at the dollar store is you a dollar, right? Uh, when I say dollar store, not always the, everything's a dollar store, but like dollar generals, places like that. So you get your seasonings there. So you get some uh, parsley and maybe some oregano and that and some chicken bouillon. You can buy the cheap, cheap little cubes of bouillon. That would be good enough, but... The better than bullion is probably worth the extra price. You probably can afford that. Now you've got a stuffing that you can do for almost nothing. 
I could keep going, but it's about being creative. Keep an eye on the yogurt section, right? So yogurt has an expiration date, not as quickly as, as quickly as milk expires, but it has an expiration date. So if you found an unsweetened plain yogurt with no crap added to it, um, you could buy a whole bunch of it for next to nothing. It's going to expire in a week. You can't use it all. Well, take it all home, dump it into a piece of cheesecloth or a flour sack towel, like I, sh I taught students this weekend, throw some herbs in it, mix it up, hang it overnight over a bowl, let all the whey drain out of it. You have a yogurt cheese. It's like a gourmet food for the price of yogurt that's about to go on, on, on set or go bad. And, and now that it's in that form in the refrigerator, it's going to last weeks. You know, I mean, so then we, 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 we could just keep going with this stuff. Um, you know, the, that leads you toward the Mediterranean side of things. So you take that cheese and you splurge and you buy a little bottle of olive oil, a little bit of olive oil on that and just a small amount of almonds. We buy one little pack of almonds. We're stingy with them because we're broke. And now we've got Lebna, which is like this really high-end gourmet cheese herb thing with olive oil and almonds. I, so I, I've gone from wheat and a thermos to that, and I'm really spending about the same amount of money per day. You can't, you got to have variety in this stuff. And, you know, maybe I'll do a show one day, cooking frugally. How to, how to cook when you're completely broke and, and still eat like a king. Maybe a fat king, but a king nonetheless. Uh, but I have to wrap it there for today. All right, with that, guys, we're going to wrap up. I've been trying to keep this show back into the one hour to hour and a half range, but being gone for a week, I wanted to give you a long show with a lot of information uh, and a lot of different stuff and a lot of variety in it. Uh, again, my voice is a bit um, questionable today. Did my best for you. I hope it's appreciated. And uh, as usual, I'm going to wrap up with uh, a different song. I think it's going to become a tradition to do a different song every episode until I run out of ideas for songs and Uh, maybe occasionally we'll play the whole revolution as you at the end once again. But uh, I got one queued up for you today that I think you'll like, kind of fitting with today's show. This is a song by one of my all-time favorite bands. Um, and I think many of you guys, especially of my age and a little older and a little younger, right in that whole, like let's say people that right now are like from 50 back to like 35, probably share that sentiment, Pink Floyd. And I played a song off of this this album of theirs from the 80s, Uh, in a recent show called On the Turning Away. And I kind of said, you know, the song's about one thing, but it can be about other things if you let it. And great great musicians, uh, great songwriters, great storytellers, they write stories, they, they write music, they write poetry that works out that way, that one person gets a totally different view of it from others. This one, I think, is one of those songs that can mean so many things to so many people. It's called Learning to Fly. I think for many of us, we have, been, we have spent so much time Uh, trying to even just get up and walk again uh, with the, the world that we live in. Uh, all the things people say you can't do, it won't succeed, it won't work. Every time I come up with a new idea and I put it out there, people are like, oh, it won't work or whatever. And, man, no way, man. It, it's like you got to get out there and get it done. And that's really about learning to fly. That's about realizing that, like, you just have to get in the game. That's what this song is for me. I hope you enjoy it. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or you fail.
Sensations 